HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. The following program has been brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery. Kane Vineyard and Winery supports Heritage Radio and the growing movement to change how Americans eat and how we think about our planet. For more information, visit www.kane5.com. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm Linda Palaccio, your host on this half-an-hour journey through culinary history. And today we're talking about something that is on everyone's plate, at least, I would imagine, once a week, um, and that is the potato. And my guest is Andy Smith. Andrew Smith is a teacher, a historian, a lecturer, a prolific writer, um, a few things I will mention, books that he has written. Andy, you are the master of the single subject, I have to say, too. It's Somebody's got to do it. It's a tough job. <laughs> Some of the books have been Tomato, Turkey, Peanut, The Encyclopedia of Junk Food. Love that one. And your, well, Andy's also the editor of the Oxford Encyclopedia of American Food. And his most recent book, aside from Potato, which we're talking about today, is Starving the South, How the North Won the Civil War. But today, we're talking about the global history of the potato. And, you know, potato is something that everyone takes for granted. Um, to be a, a good homemaker, one must put meat, vegetable, and potato on the dish, and then you have a complete meal, right? My, but, my mother would start cooking the potatoes first before she figured out what the rest <laughs> what of the, the meal would the be. Meal so would be, right. either go into the oven or they would go start boiling them. But that but was the got to have thing. the potato had, on the was, plate. That was, that was the primary dish. And okay, once a meat, week you can have rice. The meat you know? was there and a few other things were there to dress it up. Yeah. But the potato certainly has its place at the table. But where, where and when can we trace this uh, tuber that we love so much? Well, it's a it's a really strange natural history. There's 235 different species of potatoes, and they really extend from Chile and South America all the way to the American Southwest. But of those, only seven were domesticated, and uh, domestication starts about 12,000, 10,000 years ago in South America. Mm -hmm. And um, they domesticated seven of the varieties, and they became 
the the place uh, to uh, I mean particularly in the high mountains of the Andes where nothing else would grow this becomes the basis of what people ate so uh, it was extremely nutritious from a nutritional standpoint the way they prepared it and it worked out just fine well when you say domesticated is are there any wild potatoes today um, and what's the difference between wild and domesticated potatoes uh, no, there are lo- there are there are large numbers of uh, d- wild uh, wild species of potatoes. There. there are large numbers of wild species of potatoes, and they're they're still around. They're still exactly in place where they are. If you go in, in uh, the outside of South America, there's only essentially one variety of potato that's grown commercially. Would uh, we recognize a wild potato? I mean, what does it look like? No, because they're all different colors. They're different shapes. They're different sizes, and um, and they really are, have very different flavors and different tastes. So you have a huge diversity in in uh, South America. So if you go there and go to a market, there are 200 different varieties. Of, of potatoes that are on the market, and so you have a wide shift and a wide change. Well, I'm impressed even by our uh, by our markets today. The green markets used to be you'd go to the market and you'd find One, a bag of potatoes. That's it. Right? Yeah. <laughs> maybe russet and maybe you know no, a, a, right. a different style, but. Um, but and then Yukon Gold came, and everyone thought that they that were was, very that gourmet. Was it. That yeah. was it. And, and now you go to the the green markets today, and it is truly a panoply of of colors and shapes and sizes. It's it is beautiful, but not quite and not quite that many. <laughs> that's only one species and one variety of one species. So you got four thousand commercial varieties of that one type of potato. So, so when it's you talk huge. about species, where 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 we're going with with yams and sweet potatoes? No, no, and no, no. Things, yeah, yams. Yams and sweet potatoes have no botanical relationship with the potato at all. So they're totally, totally different location, points of origin, totally different in terms of plant structure. So potato is a tuber. And so you have large numbers of other potato-like plants that produce tubers. And tubers, you can eat them. So they're edible and they're they're quite different than what we think of as the potato. Mm. Uh, So how, all right, these were, this was in South America in the Andes. Yeah. Um, let's talk about the diaspora. How did the potato make its way onto every plate? Well, it's very strange because the potato really does not make it out of South America prior to uh, the, the European uh, conquest uh, in uh, the mid-16th century. So unlike many other South American plants, like chili peppers, for instance, or like tomatoes, or, or like t- tobacco, or like peanuts, you know, thousands of other uh, plants made it out of that into the Caribbean and into North America. The potato never does. And it's only when the Europeans run into it in the mid, mid-16th century that so there's lots, it's got a lot of really good qualities uh, among them. Uh, I mean, it's really easy to transport. and Heavy, uh, but easy to transport. But the heaviness is it's filled with, with good vitamins. So it's, yeah. it's, it's also filled with starch and starches of course the base basic uh, basic diet for most of the people of the 16th century so it was the perfect diet food uh, that worked out very nicely and then so so from so that there, was that was the mid 16th century yeah so the yeah. spanish run into it they they export it into spain and italy where it does grow uh, but obviously the potato is more 
uh, it, it prefers real cold climates, and mm-hmm. so it goes into Northern Europe with the Spanish uh, troops that go into Northern Europe, and uh, it's there, and it, it doubles the population of Northern Europe in about a hundred years. So it had a lot huge. of food to eat, right? <laughs> well, it's very prolific. The plant's very prolific itself, and it's relatively easy to grow. And once you plant it in the ground, you don't really have to do much to it. And so, not only that, you you gave a nice talk. Um, a couple weeks ago about the last week about the potato and about this book and it was you a fun thing that you mentioned was about cloned vegetables had anyone eaten a cloned vegetable and well so many of our plants that we eat are cloned potatoes you can grow potatoes from seed but they will not produce the same um tuber that that you had you have huge (laughs) diversity if you plant the seed pod from it not most of the seed pods now have been bred out but you can um most uh, virtually all commercial uh, production is done by seed potatoes and that's Mm -hmm. done by either a small potato or by a part of a potato and you as long as it has the eye in it yeah one potato can produce a multitude it it can produce up to uh, you know, four hundred pounds. I think is the record for for a single <laughs> p- potato plant. But wow. no, typically, it could it could be several pounds of potatoes, and that's an awful lot for for most people. If you have an acre of land, you can have enough food that will survive. Um, you know, for the full year. So it, it, that really makes a huge difference in terms of your. That's right. Well, let's talk about nutrition. I mean, you say the population doubled. How? We all know that there is vitamin B. Yes, B six. Yes. Yeah. Yep. What What else is you got vitamin C in there? You got iron. You got zinc. You got fiber. You got potassium. What else could you want in a plant? But well, if you if, if you, we could inject protein in it, we'd be well. But you have to combine it with something else. Right. Um, and uh, and many of the European farmers had cows, and so if you put milk together, milk and cheese, and other dairy products together with uh, potatoes, it worked out very well, and and it worked out enough so that population. Really mushroomed because of the introduction of the potato. Now you say that the population's doubled. Um, we all hear a lot about you know we, when we think about potatoes and potato crops and Northern Europe, of course the first thing that comes to mind is the immigration to America of so many Irish and because of the because of the potato blight and Ireland was was inhospitable, no, nothing to eat, the crops wouldn't grow. Uh, I think there are a lot of misconceptions on the on that potato famine, and maybe you can. I, I start off with putting it into the context. It's a European potato famine. It is just not Ireland, and so it really hits uh, Belgium and hits Holland and hits Scandinavia. And many of the Scandinavians who come to America will also come because of the potato blight that hits them. So you have not just immigrants of Irish, which uh, is usually gets the news, but a, a large number of other Europeans that come. And um, the best estimates are two to three hundred thousand people in northern Europe died because of the potato famine. Not Irish. We're, we're talking wow. people in Belgium and Holland. So it really is a blight that goes uh, from uh, Belgium and Holland into France uh, and goes in the opposite direction to Prussia and to Russia. So you have, you have a large number of different countries that are affected by it. Uh, and then it ends up in England. And from England, it travels at 50 miles a day with the with the wind and it's just a fascinating uh, how you one looks at the newspapers and see the blight hitting yeah. and in uh, england the, you know they had just as uh, potentially catastrophic problems in scotland for instance where a million highlanders will uh, from scotland have to leave and, and many of them go to england and many come to the united states so you have this pro- then it hits Ireland. and could they yeah. grow no other crops they were so dependent upon that one particular crop that was that was the the 
you know, the interesting thing to me is that that was... In the highlands, yes, that's the only thing you could grow. But in other places, you had alternate crops. So in the rest of Scotland, for instance, you had oats, and you could you could fall back on other crops. And in France, you had southern France, which could supply the northern uh, provinces that had problems with potatoes, with a large number of other alternative foods. So it doesn't become as serious in those places as it will in Ireland. In Ireland, of course, there's a history between the British and the Irish. Um, the Irish are... are essentially pushed to the western counties which are all hilly and you can't grow anything else other than potatoes there so it is this group of people uh, not the people in southern uh, ireland which is a huge agricultural area which grow grew wheat and grew a whole series of other uh, products so you have in fact uh, you know potatoes aren't even the largest agricultural product of ireland they're only 20 percent of the total production um, and wheat and um, dairy and other products are much much more important in terms of Irish uh, agriculture. So when the famine hits, uh, you have uh, a, when the blight hits, you have a problem, and the problem is you have Catholics on on one end, and you have Protestant um, uh, control plantation um, plantation like farms that uh, are in the southern agricultural area and uh, most of the plantation owners themselves are not wealthy they're uh, in bankruptcy most of them live in england and so they're not able to feed people and the government first steps in during the first year and actually does a very good job they hire people to work on roads Hmm. uh, and they set up you got to feed them you got to well but the idea was it's not a it was never a problem of lack of food there was always food in ireland to feed people that wasn't the issue the issue was those people who did not have their potato crops mature because of the blight, they didn't have any money to they buy the food. And, right. so, uh, and so the question is, how do you get money? And one of the answers is, you, if you get people to work, then you got money and then, you can, then they can buy their own food. And that was the hope. In the first year, there's no evidence anybody died uh, due, to the, due to starvation, lots of other diseases, but, but not that. It's yeah. economic issues. Yeah. But then the second year and the third year and the fourth year, and in the end you had a million uh, Irish who died and another million who took uh, flight to North America, 83% of which, who whom ended up in the United States. So We're talking, this is like the mid-19th century, 1845? This is beginning in 1846 and uh, ending in 1852. But even after that, uh, conditions in Ireland uh, were not particularly good. So that in 1840, you had 8 million people living in Ireland. In 1900, you have 4 million people living yeah. in Ireland. So you have large numbers of Irish who uh, die because of the famine, large number of Irish who leave during the famine, and a large number of Irish who leave after the famine, simply because there are no opportunities there. Right. So it's a huge you know, influence on on American history and on European history. Yeah. Amazing that I mean, or did the did that the potato blight ever make it across the ocean? Well, the plate, uh, the, potato, the first evidence for the potato blight is in 1842. It is in Philadelphia and Ooh. it's in New York, and so it really hits here uh, earlier than it does in Europe. And most likely, a ship from the United States went brought oh, brought, brought, <laughs> brought the brought the fungus to um, uh, you know to uh, northern Europe, and that's how it starts. But uh, it didn't originate here. Originated in South America, so there was some some interconnection that came from Chile uh, to um, the United States. But the United States, nobody was dependent on the potato. You could easily just shift crops. You can't do that in West Ireland, where mm-hmm. when the only thing that you really can grow is is potatoes. Potatoes, yeah. 
peanuts. What about peanuts? No, they have to be. Has to be a lot warmer, right? Uh, not the right geographical conditions. Yes. yes. All right. Well, you know, we're going to take a short break. There's so much more we have to talk about with potatoes, and mm, also some wonderful things to talk about. The what happened with the potatoes. So after we come back, we'll continue our discussion with Andy Smith. service announcement from Heritage Radio Network. Tune in to the main course Sundays at 12 p.m. with hosts Patrick Martins and Katie Kiefer. They examine issues from the interconnected worlds of agriculture, cuisine, and sustainability. They sit down with key players in the chain from producer to consumer, farmers, distributors, chefs, activists, and journalists. The main course explores every important component of the eating experience, how the farmers raise their product, the distribution channels that move the product, how the chefs prepare it, and how ethics and policy affect everyone involved. Again, that's the main course, Sundays at noon, on the Heritage Radio Network. We are back with my guest Andy Smith, the author of Potato, A Global History, amongst many others. Um, And speaking of Patrick uh, Martin's, uh, Katie Kiefer's main course, you heard an announcement about that during the break, Andy is going to be a guest on their show next month, and he will be talking about politics, about policy and ethics, policy and politics, uh, starving the South, how the North won the Civil War. Uh, but today we're talking about potatoes. And I love potatoes. Mm-hmm. I, I just, oh, any way you can dish them up, I'll eat them. Do you the, have some potatoes here? I'm, I've been looking for them. Where, where are they? <laughs> that secret stash of potato chips in my bag. Well, we'll talk about that in a minute. Anyone who has kept potatoes around for a while or in the wrong place or has opened the cabinet saying, ooh, is there a dead mouse here or what, knows that storing potatoes can be a real trick sometimes. And ooh, you don't want to step into the bag where there's that one rotten potato. Um, and interesting because same thing with a rotten apple. I mean, you know, it's one, one rotten potato can spoil the barrel. Um and so preserving, I mean, storing potatoes is, is an issue. If they're stored properly, they can keep for a long time, for which makes them months. so valuable. Just a couple right. months, a couple and that's months. about it. Right. Yeah. But you mentioned, you wrote um, a piece in your book about some prehistoric evidence of, of the people of the Andes and how they had an ingenious method for drying and preserving potatoes. Was yeah, it? the problem is if you try to store them, they're really only good for a couple of months, depending on the conditions under right. which you have it. It's so, to get so, soft and, and, you know, and um, mushy. So you need to save some seed potatoes, which the soft and mushy doesn't matter. You can right. plant them and that'll work out just fine. But if you want to eat them, uh, and particularly if you want to eat them months later, like six months, nine months later, uh, and if you want to 
prevent against uh, potential famine that comes along, you want to preserve it even even longer than that. You need to figure out a new way to uh, preserve them. And uh, it is the uh, uh, indigenous peoples of the Andes that figured out what, what you have to do is you have to get rid of the water in the potato. Uh, and so they, they did this by putting them on mats and then stepping on them, uh, <laughs> let, letting them. Well, of course, their feet were cleaned. You understand that they, they follow proper hygiene and then let them freeze during the night. And then the, uh, during during the next day when the sun comes out, then you walked on them again mm-hmm. and you kept doing this for several days. And you ended up uh, with a very relatively thin uh, uh, piece of potato that you could store for uh, months or years. And so they had huge storage places uh, throughout the Andes that would prevent against a famine in case the potato crop something happened to it. So this worked out very well. It's called chuño, and it's still a chuño, and it's still made today. They still do. It's they still d- preserve absolutely, them. Absolutely, they don't walk on them anymore, but they preserve them in that way. Yeah. And it's well, a freeze dried. It's or, a, like freeze dried yeah. potatoes. Yeah, yeah. interesting. Uh, astronaut food. I mean, I suppose you know it's <laughs> reconstituted. Um, int- and is there evidence of you know the old? Any of they did they find any of the old? Very old dried potatoes around. Oh yeah, just... they survived uh, five hundred years. Yes. Wow. Oh, absolutely. They're they're available if you would like to try them. Um, uh, I think I'll pass. I right. think I'll pass myself. But <laughs> right. but the answer is yes. They they certainly have survived. And and again, it's the same process that they follow today in order to make the same thing. So it's not it's not anything that just died out. It's a yeah. process that's yeah. continued. Oh, necessity, the mother of invention, right? I mean, they, they uh, people like it. It's well, it's uh, not we're pro- not we're not. It's just not something to preserve. It's also something that people enjoy. It's part of their culture. Yeah. Interesting. Well, in terms of of preserving or or extending the life, or in America, of course, marketing this wonderful tuber, a lot of different methods, not stepping on them necessarily, have come about. And uh, free, I think of freezing, of course, number one. Freezing came about very early, frozen potatoes, did it not? Well, you really have a commercial frozen potato right after World War II. Too. So you, uh, it doesn't really become viable until the 1950s. Who had freezers? Who could put them in a freezer? You had nobody with freezer. Right. Part of the part of the problem. But the other part, you had no commercial demand for them. And why, if you had access to potatoes throughout the year through a supermarket, well, why would you want a frozen potato? Right. And so there were lots of reasons on why it didn't take off until fast food came along. And fast food comes along, and initially the McDonald brothers did peel their potatoes in the back of their um, restaurant, and they did slice them, and they did. Uh, Handle them in terms of distribution, but when you expand to a thousand different outlets, or are right now thirty three thousand different outlets, right. you can't operate that way. So what they now oh yes, I forgot is, to mention you also wrote that book on hamburger. Of course, I was, you know all I about was this. hoping <laughs> you'd mention that. Yes, uh, no, 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 forgot that. But one. but in this case, virtually all of the fast food uh, potatoes that you consume, the French fries you consume, they're frozen and they're frozen and cooked. They're cooked slightly, then frozen, and then they're recooked again when they when they come out. And uh, that's the most efficient from a from a commercial standpoint. The most efficient way to do it. I personally like like the potato peeled and frozen mm-hmm. uh, uh, not frozen yeah i mean as you say if, cook, if you have so. a chain restaurant outside of, a, of an individually owned restaurant that has the staff that can do them on demand yeah i guess you're right almost all the french fries we eat are frozen almost all of them are now there are some chains that that cook them fresh like in and out burger in california mm-hmm. and five guys restaurant in eastern so you do have you do have some restaurants that really pride themselves on uh, on frying uh, 
normal potato rather than use a frozen potato. And the French fries are good. No matter how you cook them up, they're good. But they lose, the, the, don't they lose a little something? In they lose part. a little something, but also they're really good conveyors for other flavors that yeah. were like ketchup, ketchup, for instance, and salt, <laughs> for instance, minor things like that. Yeah. Uh, and But the thing is, is, is people... Potato gets maligned for, you know, being a fat food, a food that's going to make you fat. And, of course, along come French fries, and then it's all the grease or the or the beef suet or the whatever the, you know, the fat is cooked in. Um, yeah, potatoes and, have no fat whatsoever, right. so it's what we Everything do to we them add to add them. on, which makes them uh, a nutritional... Uh, the greasy uh, gravy. and the <laughs> They're a nutritional catastrophe, is, uh, is the honest answer. Yeah. But uh, As you say, the few, vehicle for all those other flavors. A few, a few, a few uh, French fries now and then are not, not going to hurt kill you. anybody, right. you know. So. And then along came the man from Saratoga. Well, it's attributed to him, but actually I found uh, recipes in cookbooks that had very thin uh, uh, potatoes that were, I would imagine that were fried in up. France uh, and Belgium. Prior to that. Well, it could well be, uh, but uh, in the end, it's the American from Saratoga, New York, that gets credit for creating potato chips. Potato actually, chips. Saratoga chips, as they were called, promoting yeah. the hotel in which he was a chef. Um, and uh, for for early early times, that's exactly what they had, and they really were not a, a major commercial success until the 1930s. Uh, and the main reason is you had to have a packaging revolution. You can't. They initially made uh, potato chips, put them into barrels. <laughs> yeah, talk about labor intensive. And then there would be a sign on the barrel saying, <laughs> "You really probably should heat these before you consume them." And, right. and so uh, that was not a success. And it's only when you have the the cellophane like bags that are produced that you can put names on the outside and you can brand them that you really and that, success. So when did that come about? Really 1930s. In so, the 30s as well? Yeah, and that's when you have the beginning of Lay's potato chips mm, and, mm-hmm. um, and a number of other potato chips that we consume today had their had their origin in the 30s or 40s. Well, there was also there was this, the huge craze that took hold too, the whole salty snack craze took, you know. Well, salty snack uh, have a history going back to Popcorn and yeah. peanuts and things like that, but mm-hmm. um, but really the the chip world starts really has a, a its big bang after World War II when uh, supermarkets start marketing hundreds of different types of potato chips and and corn chips and all the other types. And of now chips. we're really talking fat. I mean, we're talking zero z- zero nutritional benefit here, right? I mean, zero. You would have to bring that up. Yes, I'm, yeah. I'm sorry to say there's no nutritional benefit in um, potato chips, but it's that psychological joy Ooh. of just consuming one or two. You know, that's no, no, a, no, you can't eat just one. I can't. <laughs> they are good, but of they course, as a little side snack to I, that nice... I can't buy them anymore because I go through the bag from the beginning yeah. to the end, so with I've with learned... With the healthy sandwich or the healthy salad, you can yep. eat a couple of chips, right? Well, you know, aside from... Well, frozen, we, went, we kind of... Did short shrift to the frozen potatoes. I mean, Orida, the big frozen company. Yep. It, it, that were, did they become the largest yes. frozen potato they company? Are, right. They are. They are today still. Yeah. Well, so many different companies have um, taken on different forms of frozen potatoes that people would never have thought to consume 
frozen and then reheated. Right. But every dish, you, every potato dish you can possibly imagine, I think, is probably comes in a frozen form somewhere. Right, and many frozen dinners, for instance, will have right. potatoes as a part of them. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, but they just yeah. never the mashed potato never tasted as good in no. those TV dinners as you know. Moms no, but I could, made. I can remember the first TV dinner with the mashed potatoes down there, and even mm. though it didn't taste good, it was the idea of of having something that you could supposedly eat in front of a TV. That's right. And, and of course, TVs in the fifties were something a shock and a surprise. So. <laughs> <laughs> we can't talk about that. No one would quite understand. The, the other <laughs> real interesting use of potatoes, which you haven't mentioned, is in their liquid form, uh, which ends up in vodka. In vodka, that's so right. Well, now, was... Not many, not many vodkas today are made with potatoes. Most of them are, are grain based, but but you do have some specialty vodkas that are do have a potato base. And uh, I can't. Tell well, and a lot of people think that all Polish vodka is potato vodka, which is not true. It's, it's not a rye, true. you know, rye grain, other grain. And neither is, neither is Russian vodka potato. That's vodka. right. It's all grain based. Yeah. But there, but there are plenty of potato vodkas on the market. I mean, right. you can you can taste there is a distinctive dif- difference in the in the flavors. Um, interesting and, and good ones as well. Uh, as far as somebody who has um, tried <laughs> tried to raise what you talked about, Parmentier, trying to yes. to raise the uh, the profile of the lowly potato, and uh, that was an interesting story. Can you tell yeah, us a little bit? Yeah, about potatoes that? were in France before Parmentier, um, but he happened to be a soldier in the Seven Years' War, what, what we call the French and Indian War in America, <laughs> uh, and he was captured by uh, the Prussians, and the Prussians put him in prison, and they served him potatoes, and that was the first time he had eaten potatoes. So when he got out of uh, the prisoner of war camp after the war was over, uh, he then said, well, I'm going to start experimenting with potatoes, and he does that, and he, and he uses all sorts of techniques in order to get people to consume them. Uh, and one of those is in cooperation with Ben Franklin, who happens to be in uh, Paris at the time during the American Revolution, to create this all-potato dinner, of which I've tried to duplicate. You, you did try to do I that, did. David. I did. I did. Yeah, my wife said, well, this is an awful lot of potatoes to consume in a single meal. But uh, but the, the goal was to introduce, this case, the elite to potatoes. And it really didn't take off. He gets a lot of credit because he tried real hard. And he published a lot of articles. But uh, potatoes really don't take off in France until uh, 50 years after his death, but the mid-19th century. And there was a, a famous dish today that bears his name. The Parmentier. The, There's uh, many. Yes. Yeah, the, the French, of course, once the once the potato entered into French cuisine, then it then it, uh, it multiplies into dozens of different specialty dishes, which are, are still part of French cuisine today. Yeah, interesting. Um, the we were talking about about the potato. Uh, okay, help me out here. We were talking about him and how it backfired. Um, his dinner. Well. We'll wow. come to another one. Now, um, you have a picture in your book of something that I, I'm i not real sure about. It's Jones, the Jones Soda Company. Jones makes some really good sodas, if anyone knows the Jones Soda Company. But they have pictured, you have it pictured in your book, and it called the mashed potato soda. Is this a real thing? That's what they said. I believe Did everything. Did you taste that it? Written. I haven't tasted it, no. So uh, I just I just want you to know that was unusual, and that's one of the early photographs right at the beginning of the book. And yeah. It's, and it's supposed to say, what is this? What, yeah, well, that's exactly well, what the, it is. The, the problem the, is the elicited from me. Everybody knows what a potato is, and we have all these images of it. And my goal in the book was to say, hey, there are a lot of other things that are there that you don't think about. Think outside the box. And that's <laughs> one of the reasons on why that uh, picture ends up in there. But I haven't. 
honestly tried it. So m- maybe if if they're listening, they can send me a couple bottles that I can. I, I can't. I just can't begin to imagine what the flavor would be like. But I'm sure you know. You add enough carbonation and sugar to it, you know, anything could taste good, right? There's no, is there a mashed potato? Jelly bean. We've got that. I don't. Know. There is the mashed potato <laughs> dance, though. There gonna, is. We're going to do it as soon will, as this program will, is over. We will do dance the mashed our way potato. Out of right. here. That's right. Well, there. I mean, I think that potato is probably one of the most versatile. Yes. Vegetables that we can think of. As you said, a vehicle for lots of other flavors right. and, and sauces. But even on its own, what you can fry it, boil it, yeah, you know, mash it, yeah. uh, chop I don't, it. You I don't can know. eat it raw. I don't know of any other uh, vegetable that can be served and prepared in, in so many different ways. And, and as well as raw. As I mean, Yeah, as uh, people don't eat raw potatoes in America. But, but, but they're, they edible. Are, they're edible. And the yeah. juice, by the way, which is most likely if they do make the soda from the potatoes, what they, they juice yeah. the potato and use it from that. But, yeah. uh, now, the, one, of the, one of the things that really shocked me about the potato was how the potato has migrated from essentially North America, South America, and Europe uh, into Asia. And and India I did know because I eat Indian food, and so therefore I was aware that uh, potato plays a very important role, particularly in northern northern Indian food. But the shock was, uh, to me, uh, China and People's Republic of China, which is now the largest producer of potatoes in the world. And I just never associated potatoes with With uh, Chinese cuisine. Interesting. And, of course, uh, as we have in the book, we have a couple recipes from China that uh, are Chinese dishes. And um, And I I, I should have have had those at the ready. Yes, you are ready. You're ready to give them. Are we going to sample those a little later on? I I would love to do that. Roberta's going to prepare them for us. But I have to say, you know, we have, it is, spring is, I think, finally upon us, and all I can think about are picnics and outdoor food, and there again, you have potato salad. I mean, potatoes again. I, I looked, I, my my parents always called, my mother always called it German potato salad. German potato salad. And, and indeed, that was the, that's the vinaigrette potato salad. Yeah, there's different, the they're different, they're salad, different yeah. ways of making it, but indeed, I will look back, and historically, there are German potato salads uh, going back at least 300 years, so uh, it was something that, it wasn't just a made-up name, it really was uh, a heritage that came through. That's right, and the, Thai, the German potato salad to me was always with the little bacon and, yep. the, and yep. the hot vinegar, yep. and oh, oh, wonderful. It's a warm, warm wonderful. salad. Yeah. Uh, and now, uh, of course, it's the season for new potatoes, so you've yes. got you've, yes. and those are delicious. Just pop them in the, in the oven, uh, roast them plain, Dip them in salt. Mm. I'm hungry. <laughs> well, Andy, once again, it's been an, an informative half an hour, and I hope that people have learned about the potato, and they can learn even more from your book, Potato, A Thank Global you, History. And this has been A Taste of the Past. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening. In 2010, EscapeMaker.com won an Emmy Award for their agritourism webisode. So this year they thought, why not bring agritourism and green getaway ideas right to you? Come to the Green Getaways Local Food and Travel Expo on April 30th at One Hanson Place, home of the Brooklyn Flea and former Williamsburg Savings Bank. 
Presented by Amtrak, Zipcar, and I Love New York, the carbon-free event will be a day filled with food, prizes, workshops, and kids' activities. Over 50 getaway destinations, from counties to local farms and bed and breakfasts within a day's drive or train ride of New York City, will be exhibiting on the main floor and in the huge bank vault downstairs. See what's hot in sustainable travel and receive special show-only discounts. Grow NYC will be doing workshops on the green market, and Appalachian Mountain Club will offer workshops on adventure bicycling and hiking via mass transit. EscapeMaker.com will be giving away over 50 getaway prizes, ranging from zipline adventure passes to an overnight stay at Mohonk Mountain House. Travel greener, eat local. Come to the expo on April 30th. Get your tickets now at www.escapemaker.com. The following message has been brought to you by Fairway Market. What's the buzz about honey? Well, those busy little bees are up to something, and it is delicious. The Fairway label honey is superb. Fairway only hires worker bees that are the best at what they do. This makes for a great-tasting, high-quality honey at an amazing value with the Fairway stamp of approval. And on top of being delicious, honey is a great substitute for other sweeteners and can even benefit your health. This includes better energy, respiratory improvements, and balanced blood sugar levels. It's a no-brainer. Get your fairway honey today. Whole Foods Market celebrates Earth Month with the Do Something Real Film Festival, a collection of six provocative character-driven films focused on food, environmental issues, and everyday people with a greater vision. Come see one of the six features at City Cinemas Village East from Saturday, April 16th through Thursday, April 21st, every night at 6 p.m. Learn more about the films and special events at www.dosomethingreal.com. That's www.dosomethingreal.com. Sponsored by Whole Foods Market.